Heavenly Father, we're excited to finish the journey here in 1 Timothy today and then get ready for next week with the God questions and the prayer and worship night and kicking off our life groups and, and all the good things that are coming. Um, Kids Bible Club and Moms Connect and so many things are coming. Right now, Lord, I pray that you'll help us focus on what does it mean to fight the good fight for the faith. Lord, help us to understand that and live it out and put it into practice. God, help us to get excited about pursuing godliness. Lord, I pray for all of us to be able to hear and understand and put it into practice. God, I pray for me. I pray that I'll just be emptied of myself, kind of that idea that if I'm a cup, uh, I want to empty myself of all the bad stuff so the Lord, you can fill me with your Holy Spirit so that what I say is what you want communicated here today. And Lord, that takes your grace and your uh, spirit at work to accomplish that. So Lord, I just pray that I'll get out of the way so you can have your way. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Fight the good fight of faith. That's what our title in 1 Timothy has been about since Memorial Day when we started the series. And it just sort of irked me that we didn't get to talk about fighting for the good fight of faith because Paul didn't say those very words to Timothy until all the way in chapter 6. So we had to wait all the way to the end to get to the actual message that has to do with fighting the good fight of faith. But that's just me and sharing my little quirky frustration. So... Uh, other than that, I, I do want to kind of give a recap and say where have we been as we've gone through these six chapters that Paul has written to his protege, this apostolic delegate, sent to the church of Ephesus to say, Timothy, I want you to straighten out some things. I want you to teach him some things. I want you to model some things for this church so that they uh, follow Christ correctly. They do church the way that God wants them to do. So let's recap real quick. Um, first off, we, uh, we learned in chapter 1, uh, and this is in slide number 2, that Paul was told, uh, or Timothy was told by Paul, it says, Paul, when you get to Ephesus, you need to, it, you need to do something that's very important. You have to promote our Christian faith, and you need to do it with sound teaching. Sound teaching that conforms to the teaching of the Bible. You know, that sometimes you've heard it said in the Bible, it says the main things are the plain things, right? The main things are the plain things. Teach the plain teachings of Scripture. Teach what Jesus taught us to live. Follow the model of Jesus, you know? Do all that. Promote sound teaching in the church. And when you do that, it's not enough just to teach the right things because, like, for instance, me, if I'm sort of in the place of Timothy at this church, like he was in Ephesus, it wouldn't do any good for the church if I come across as all pious on Sunday and then you see me out during the week and I'm out doing all kinds of stuff that's not very godly or you run into me at Whole Foods and I, I'm grouchy and I don't even give you the time of day or I get in an argument with a cashier because he didn't give me a discount or I didn't bring my... <laughs> There's lots of stories I have about Whole Foods when I first got here. Uh, welcome to Sonoma County type stuff. Um, like the time I didn't remember to bring my bags in the in the in the, the the checkout counter, so I had to ask for bags, and then I said I actually said oh, I asked, do you have plastic? <laughs> and I was like, oh man. So that was like welcome, welcome to the new world uh, living up here in Sonoma County. Um, but anyway, so but the point is if. 
Timothy, if you're going to teach the right things on Sunday or whenever you guys gather together with God's people, you also need to live the right things all during the week. Otherwise, you're a hypocrite and you discredit the whole Christian faith. So you have to do those two things. Then number three, and when we got into chapter two, uh, we talked about praying. And we talked about praying in public together in church. And we need to have the proper attitude when we pray together in public. And that's why Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, I want, I want, when you guys pray together, I want holy hands lifted up to God. You realize that they pray looking up to heaven in the first century with their hands up like this. So sometimes they'd be down on their knees, they'd be humble themselves like this, like King Solomon did when he was dedicating the temple there in 1 Kings. Uh, and they'd be looking up to God and speaking to God with his eyes wide open. Uh, we, we sort of uh, embody humility when we pray. We say, will you close your hands, uh, which every kid learned at the dinner table so you wouldn't be messing around. So close your hand and hold them tight and bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. In this case, it was upright, looking up, eyes wide open, praying in public. And, but Paul said it this way, I want you guys to lift up holy hands in prayer, hands that are set apart to God, lives that are living for God. And when you do that, I want you to pray for kings and all those who are in authority. I want you to pray for the leaders of, and the governors of your community and your land that you're living in because if God blesses them, then we can live quiet and peaceful lives and we can get on with the business of the kingdom of God, which is making disciples and growing his church. And so he says, I want holy hands lifted in prayer. And he says, this pleases God, our Savior. And then he says, who wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And somebody says, well... There's going to be some people at the end, according to Revelation, you get to the last book of the Bible, there's this time of judgment. Some people are going to be on the good side. Some people are going to be on the bad side. Like Jesus said, like this analogy of the sheep and the goats. And I think in that analogy, you want to be a sheep. <laughs> you don't want to be a goat. So on the side that's going to heaven, they're the ones uh, that are with Jesus, the ones that are at the great white throne judgment at the end, they're the ones that were not submitting their lives to Jesus, so they're going to be judged. And Paul says, but if you really want to know what God wants, not just how it's going to be at the end, because God doesn't control people, and everybody makes their own choices, how they're going to live and what they're going to believe. And, and then God says, you can have the choice of what you want to believe, but I'm going to hold you accountable for your choices at the end, right? So we're going to be held accountable. But he says, but this pleases God our Savior if you pray this way because he wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So if you want to know what God wants, what God wills, he wants everybody in his kingdom. He doesn't want anybody lost. It doesn't please him that anybody's lost and rejects Christ. So he wants everybody in his kingdom. And then, so we, so we have those attitudes when you pray. Right before you get to number four, last night I was going through the first Timothy, just, just scrolling down the chapter saying, okay, yeah, we covered this, we covered that. Do you know I didn't cover something that's in the outline? And that is what I call 3B. So right between three and four, there's this important message that I backed up the clock and, I, and the calendar and I realized this was June 23rd. This was the week after Father's Day and I came in and I preached a message called a woman's place in the church. A woman's place in the church. And you all fell for it because you all thought I was going one way and I went, I went a different way. But the idea was 
What is a woman's place in the church? Does a woman have the ability and the authority to preach and to teach uh, God's word in the church if she is under the proper authority of the church leadership? And I came out uh, on the side of yes. I think there are no limitations when it comes to gender as to who can preach and teach from the pulpit in a church given the, um, that they're, whoever it is, that they're under the proper authority of the church leadership. So I came out that a woman's place is in the church, uh, doing what God has called her to do, that there's no restrictions based on gender for, for that. So that was 3B. Then uh, number four, so we go to the next slide, and now we have other things we talked about in 1 Timothy. Uh, first one was hold high. When, 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 remember we were talking about uh, this fall, because every fall in the church here we have an election and we have elders and deacons and deaconesses and board members and those church officers who are leaders in the church, uh, they come up for nominations and for elections. And so Paul says it very clearly in chapter 3, if you're going to be an elder, you've got to have certain moral, spiritual qualifications to be an elder. It's not just, you know, enough that you bring a Bible and you're here most every Sunday and you put money in the offering plate. That's a good start, but that's not all the qualifications that there are. There are many more. Be above reproach and uh, be, a, you know, married to one person, not one person at a time, but, you know, be married to one uh, person. Try to be faithful to that, you know, et cetera. So all the... All of the qualifications for the church leadership, discipline yourself. And, and then Paul makes those moral, moral qualifications high. He sets the bar high. Not just anybody is qualified to be in those positions. So there's number four. Number five, Timothy says, hey, remember we talked about physical training being of some value, right? It says in 1 Timothy 4, physical training is of some value, but godliness or spiritual training, that has value for all time, not just for your life here on earth, but it has value into eternity. So he says, yeah, it's good to exercise physically. It's better to exercise spiritually. And, and Paul says this command to Timothy, Timothy, you're going to be a leader in the church. You've got to discipline yourself to be godly. You want to be a good disciple? You're not going to be a good disciple without discipline. It's where the two words are related to each other. So, there, so Timothy has to discipline himself to be godly if he wants to be the right kind of leader in that church. He has to guard his motives. He has to serve faithfully. Then number six, we talked about this a few weeks ago, false teaching coming into the church. Teaching that is against the sound teaching of the gospel, teaching that challenges the historic Christian faith and basically says, look, maybe, um, maybe you, uh, certain practices that are in the church regarding marriage or sexuality or politics or uh, moral practices, whatever, whatever they are, those, uh, a lot of people come in and they come into the church and they say, hey, you guys are following this ancient religion that has these ancient values, but you need to get with the times. I mean, society has changed, and people have grown, and, and um, you know, we talked about progressive Christianity and the, the infiltration of doctrines that come from progressive Christianity that are really against the Orthodox Christian faith. And so we said, you've got to, Timothy, you've got to watch out for the false teaching in the church. And you need to know the true teaching of the church so well that when the false comes along and the counterfeit comes along, you are so ready to recognize it. You say, 
no, that doesn't, that doesn't pass the sniff test. Whatever that teaching is, there's something wrong with that. And you check it with the teaching of Scripture, and you say, okay, if there, there's something wrong with that. And you reject it. And Timothy says, you're going to have to sniff out the false teachers. You're going to have to stop their teaching. And you're going to have to make sure that everybody in the church is okay and healthy spiritually because they know what the sound teaching of Scripture is. So he says, Timothy, then you've got to devote yourself to public reading of Scripture and preaching and teaching and encouraging the people. Get them so filled with the Word of God that when the false comes along, they just go, eh, I know that that's not right. I reject it. I'm not going to follow that. I'm not going to get duped into following that. And then number seven, care. And this was when the, the, all the talk of the widows came around, right? How to treat each other in the church. You know, treat the older women with respect and dignity as if they were their mothers. Treat the men like they were their fathers. Treat your younger men like they're your brothers. And treat the younger women with, like your sisters, like, like you would treat your own sister with all purity, right relationships in the church. And then Timothy, if there are needy people in the church, if there are widows, if they're poor, if there are sick people who can't take care of themselves, and if they have no family to take care of them, Timothy, then the, the responsibility is for the church to help take care of its own members in that way. But if the family can help take care of them, then if you're a family member and you have the ability to take care of somebody who's needy, then you should step up and do that. Because Paul says in chapter 5 and verse 8, if someone won't even take care of their own family member, they've denied the faith. They're worse than an unbeliever. So strong words, harsh words that Paul said to those who wouldn't uh, keep their own responsibilities of taking care of their family. So let's get on to verse 11 now, because now, now we're into the last 10 verses of 1 Timothy, and there's a lot there to unpack, okay? Uh, verse 11. This is in slide number five. But you, Timothy, you are a man of God. Now, man of God, you see, that word comes along all throughout the old, the Hebrew scriptures and the Christian uh, text. And every time it comes up with a man of God, it's either a prophet, it's somebody like Moses or one of the prophets. It's somebody who's dedicated their lives to serve God. And Paul identifies Timothy as one of those people. Timothy, you are a man of God, and because you are, you've got to discipline your life, keep yourselves from certain things, pursue other things. So what do you need to avoid? Timothy, run from all these evil things. Now you say, these evil things. You know, every text has a context. So the part that we just got done with last week was, you remember I was talking about godliness and, I, and contentment, and I said, hey, there, the, Paul says the way to have happiness in life, the way to have contentment in life, godliness with contentment, that's great gain. And you say, so how do you have contentment in this life? How do you have freedom from discontentment? How do you have freedom from looking around at what everybody else has and says, well, I don't have that. Gosh, they got this and I don't even have that. Next thing you know, you're unhappy with your own life because you're looking around and see what other people have. And by the way, when we do that, it's, a, it's just human nature. We hardly ever look at other people who have a lot less than we have and we say, oh, wow, God, I'm really grateful for what I have because I could have this over here and I'm, I, I'm glad that I have, you know, an, even more means to get by and, and pay my bills and stuff like that than a person over there. So, God, thank you for the life I have. I don't know how many people do that. You know, Martin Luther, the story was he was going along a road and he saw a beggar on the side of the road who had nothing 
And his, his godly response was there, but for the grace of God, go I, right? So he's looking at somebody had less, and he says, thank God that I have what I have. But what do we do when we're not walking in the spirit, walking in the flesh? We're not looking at what other people who have less than us have. We're looking at what more they have. And when they have more than us, then we get dissatisfied. And you remember that great Puritan preacher I told you about last week, Jeremiah Burroughs. Anybody look him up? Wow, that's sad. Okay, Jeremiah Burroughs preached this great message in the 1630s in England, and he says the rare jewel of contentment. Is this starting to, you know, a week goes by, you've taken in so many things, all those episodes of binge-watching, whatever you're watching, and it's just, it's just filled your mind with other things. But as far as the Scripture goes, the rare jewel of contentment, and he says, here it is. Here's your desires... And here's what you have. Here's your possessions. And he says, contentment is found when you take your desires and you match your desires to the level of your possessions, right? When your desires match the level of your possessions, that's where you can find contentment, right? Godliness with contentment is great gain. So that was last week. And so he says, you got you to run from the evil things. You got to run from those who are trying to be rich. Run from those who are dissatisfied with the life that they have right now. I can only be happy if I have all this other stuff. That's called greed. And let greed get a hold of you. And now you fall into these traps of materialism and what you're willing to do to get the money, uh, to, to have what you want so you think you'll be happy if you have that. But the way that greed works is you're never going to be happy because the minute you get to that level, you start looking around again and you see somebody who has more than that. Even the billionaire, John Rockefeller, my gosh. The guy is the world's first billionaire, this oil magnet, John Rockefeller. And he gets a, he's a millionaire and he starts uh, flicking dimes off Wall Street when he gets his first million dollars. And he gets interviewed by a reporter I think I told you this story before, but he gets interviewed by a reporter. It's like 1910 or 1911. And they said, Mr. Rockefeller, a billionaire, that is amazing accomplishment. You're wealthier than anybody else on, on planet Earth right now. He says, so are you happy? Do you, are, have you found your happiness? Are you content where you are right now? And he just shook his head and he says, not really. Well, how much? I mean, how much more money do you need in order to really be content or happy? You're already a billionaire. And he says just a little more, just a little more. And that's the way greed works. You can never really be happy where you are. So godliness with contentment. Let your desires match the level of your possessions. You find that, you're going to be happy. And that was last week. So now we get to this week. So leave that pursuit of materialism. That's called evil. If that's all you're pursuing for its own end, just so you can think you'll be content if you get there, run from those evil things, pursue righteousness, a godly life, along with faith and love and perseverance and gentleness and all these qualities that Jesus has, right? Righteousness, a godly life, godliness. Remember we talked about godliness last week. What is godliness? Godliness is a God-centered life. There's a throne in your life that represents who is governing your life, who's in charge, who's calling the shots in your life. And most of us you know, unless it's a, a, a walking in the spirit type day, most of us, in fact, we probably toggle back and forth as the day goes on. Uh, most of us, we are the ones sitting in the throne of our lives. And Jesus says, 
well, wait a minute. If I'm going to be your Savior, if I'm going to be your Lord, if I'm going to be the leader of your life, you're going to have to get out of the driver's seat and you're going to have to let Jesus sit there in the throne of your life. You're the follower. He's the leader. Are you ready to do that? And most people say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Until about 10 minutes later when a decision comes along where you have to submit yourself to the Lordship of Christ and you're like, nah, I'm going to get back on the throne. So it says it, you can't have a godly life unless you're willing to put Jesus on the throne of your life instead of yourself. So pursue our godly life along with all of these great godly traits, right? So he goes on to verse 12. Finally, and this guy who's been speaking this from this passage, from this book of 1 Timothy, oh, these 12 weeks, finally I can rejoice because we've arrived. We've arrived at the actual verse that I wanted to get to. This whole series it says, fight, Timothy, fight the good fight for the true faith. Hold tightly to the eternal life to which God has called you, to which you have declared so well before many witnesses. Fight the good fight for the faith, right? Paul is likening this faithful living. So he says, you want to live a life that pleases God? You're going to have to fight. Why? Because we have opposition in this world that we live in, right? I think in uh, 1 John chapter 2, it talks about the world, it talks about greed, it talks about the devil. Uh, we have lots of enemies for us to live the right kind of life that God wants us to live. And so if you're going to fight the good fight for the faith, you're going to have to overcome these obstacles. You're going to have to overcome these enemies. How many times did Jesus say in the book of Revelation, he's writing to a church, he's writing to a group of God's people, and he says, to whoever overcomes... They're going to get this kind of reward. But you're not going to get that reward from Jesus if you do not overcome. And in order to overcome, you're going to have to fight. And you're going to have to fight until, by God's grace, you actually win a victory. So Paul likens this faithful living to a vigorous and sometimes perilous engagement with enemy forces. You're going to have to fight against enemy forces. The imagery is of an athlete entering a contest contending at the games, and then also contending with an adversary. Now, if you want to contend at the games in a real violent way, of course, the Romans had the arena. Today, we have this thing called ultimate fighting or MMA, you know, uh, Bellator or whatever these other uh, organizations are that have this ultimate fighting where you are, you are literally face-to-face, neck-to-neck, fist to fist, knee to knee, elbow to elbow with somebody who is your adversary and they're trying to pound you into the ground and you have to beat them. I don't think Paul's necessarily talking about fighting that kind of a fight or a soldier who is going into battle and fighting an enemy to the death. I think Paul's talking about it more in, in athletic terms and he's saying you're going to have an athletic contest, you're going to have an adversary, but you need to overcome the adversary. So you can get real civilized about it. You can say, well, let's don't talk about MMA fighting. Let's talk about another sport. College football, well, that's, that's kind of violent too. And I've seen, we, I saw people carted off the field yesterday. That's uh, through the tackling and all the collisions that happen at high speed with these big, huge, uh, strong, fast collegiate athletes that are running into each other. Let's talk about something more civilized. So... Let's talk about tennis, you know. Tennis is a gentlemanly sport, is it not? Or a ladies' sport, right? You don't actually touch your opponent, right? 
The only time you really might touch your opponent is if you're up at the net or you're volleying and uh, you don't hit your opponent with your hand or your fist or with the tennis racket, but you might hit him with the tennis ball. You ever watch doubles tennis? And somebody gets whacked pretty good in, dub in doubles tennis. But that's about as, as violent as it gets. And you have this net that separates the two players from each other. And, and even, you know, they get on the odd number of games and they switch sides on the court and they go to sit down to get a drink of water or Gatorade or something. And it's very polite. It's very, oh, please, after you, you know, go ahead. Have a seat. I'll have a seat. Very civilized. I think, I think what's the imagery here is it's somewhere between a civilized game of tennis and a full-on MMA contest, right? Because we, Paul is saying you're going to have to fight. You're going to have to struggle. In fact, the two words that are used for fight the good fight, are the Greek words that they're using is the same word we get for agonize. You're going to have to agonize in order to win a victory. It's not going to come easily. It's not going to come easily. We have, the, we have the enemy of our souls. We have the devil. We have this world system that we live in. We have this fallen culture that we live in. We have people that are around us that are who are flat out opposed to the Christian faith. And then you have this more subtle adversary, which is what I call the the lukewarm Christian or the nominal Christ follower who they may think you're a little too Jesus freakish for them when you're trying to live the Christian life and trying to say, hey, look, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I want to I wanna live for the glory of Christ and Christ alone. I want to have him on the throne of my life and I want to be the servant. He's the master. I want to live that way. I want to every decision I make, I want to say, you know, you know, what does God want me to do? How does he want me to react in this, in this situation? That kind of thinking to a lot of people, even who name the name of Christ and say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, I follow him, that's a radical, that's kind of a Jesus freak. And you may actually have as much or more opposition from a, a milk toast Christian or a nominal or a lukewarm Christian, you may have more opposition from a person like that than you do on from a full-on atheist who says, I can't believe you believe in God or Jesus at all. So whatever the adversary you have to face, you're going to have to fight for the... But again, remember, you're not fighting a person, you're fighting for the faith. You're fighting for the glory of God and for the advancement of the Christian faith. So Paul uses four active verbs here in verses 11 and 12. Four active verbs. You see a few in verse 12, but let me run it back to verse 11. First he says run. He says you're going to have to run. You're going to have to run from what? You're going to have to run away from the evil things that don't please God. Run away from the dangers of loving money and longing to be rich. If you do run after those things, Paul says they get plunged into destruction, into ruin. You don't want to go down that road. Run away from that pathway. Run towards something else. And so he says, run away from that. Pursue is the next verb. And it says, uh, by the way, it means to keep on pursuing. I wish I could tell you that if you pursue it with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength today, you can have rest from ever having to pursue it tomorrow or the next day or the next day. But as a pastor said that I was going to his church in the 90s up in Sacramento, and he said, you know what the problem is with the Christian life? And I'm thinking like, he's a pastor. What, what is he talking about, a problem? It's nothing but joy and peace, right? Uh, no, what, he says, you know what the trouble or the problem is with the Christian life? And he says, it is so daily. 
It is so daily. You could have an awesome day in the Lord, awesome day following Jesus all week long, and you get to the next day and you could fall flat on your face. And all that goodness, all that success you had doesn't necessarily mean you're going to walk in the Spirit in the days ahead. So when Paul says pursue, he's saying keep on pursuing. It's a lifelong goal. It's a marathon. You're going to have to keep doing it. Keep pursuing righteousness and godliness and love and faith and perseverance and all these other traits that he mentions here. So there's run, there's pursue. The third verb is fight, which is great. Fight the good fight and remember what we're fighting for. We're fighting against the enemies of the faith. We're fighting for the, 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 that the true faith would progress, would advance. That's going to require agonizing at times. It's going to be a struggle, but you can overcome. Look what Paul says in Romans. Paul's writing a letter to the Roman church. He gets down to chapter 12, and he says, you know what, the over, you know, we're going to have this spiritual battle here on earth until we get to heaven. There won't be any more battles in heaven. No more tears, no more disappointment, no more failure. Nothing but well done, good and faithful servant. And the Apostle John adds this. I'm sorry, uh, Paul says in Romans, he says on the top, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So as you're pursuing all that good, you're going to be able to overcome evil. You're going to overcome it with good. The Apostle John adds this, For whoever is born of God overcomes the world. Right? John, he, he talks about the kingdom of God, and he talks about this world and this system. In fact, at the end of John's letter, uh, uh, I think one of the last verses, he says, For the whole world lies in the lap of the evil one. The whole world lies in the lap of the evil one. So we're not in a neutral territory here. We're always facing opposition. And he says, what is, what is born of God? If you have God's spirit living in you because you put your trust in Jesus, you will overcome the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So keep faithful, keep pursuing God, and you will overcome. So fighting, we are fighting for the true faith. How does God want us to fight? The battle is not physical. The battle is spiritual. So how do you fight? When, when you're walking along this week and you're saying, fight for the true faith. Fight the good fight for the true faith. What does that mean? I don't feel like I need to fight at all. I'm walking along. Life is good. You know, I've got my beats on and my headphones and I'm just listening to Christian music and everything's good. But something's going to come along and something is going to challenge you. Something is going to oppose you. It might start with a honk of a horn. It might start with a, hey! You, you know, what do you do? And, and you're going to face opposition. And when that happens, realize that here's where the battle is. Here's where you're going to have to fight the good fight for the faith. And Paul says it this way, because Paul says that the battle is spiritual. It's not just physical. Remember, Paul says in putting on the armor of God, he says, for, for our battle is not against flesh and blood, Right? Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual powers. Paul says this in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. It's in slide number 9. It's a long passage, but it's really good. In fact, I thought of Kimberly when she said 2 Corinthians was her favorite book in the Bible. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the, as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world, right? There's going to be a war. It's a spiritual battle. 
You don't fight with the same weapons that the rest of the world fight with, fights with. He says, on the contrary, the weapons that God gives us, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. What are the strongholds? Well, the stronghold would be anything that sets itself up against God. Whether saying Jesus is not the Son of God. We're saying uh, the Bible uh, is not really the inspired Word of God. We're saying uh, you Christians practice these moral values. They are so outdated and antiquated. In fact, it makes you hateful, bigoted, homophobic, fear-monging people that ought to be marginalized and pushed out of mainstream society. You know, all, all the kinds of ideas that come along and set itself up against the, the kingdom of God. And he says, the weapons we fight with that God gives us, they have de divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So think about it in terms of there's going to come a thought in your life this week. There's going to come a value. There's going to come somebody along in your life that spouts off some opinion about something and they think it's true and they think it's right. But you know because you have filled your life with godly teaching, you've pursued righteousness, you're reading God's word, you know what the truth says to you. So when the counterfeit comes along or the lie comes along, you can recognize it. And it says, it says, how do you do it? You take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So you've got a really good filter on in your mind and in your heart. And that filter says, God, I need to know the truth from the lies. I need to know what is really from you versus from either the world or the enemy or people who don't believe in you. Reveal to me what the truth is and help me to hang on to what is true and to reject what is false. Because if you can do that successfully and you can have enough discernment to say, here's when the false comes along, you can successfully recognize the false idea, the false teaching, and you can take captive that thought and make it obedient to Christ. And hopefully you can give an answer to the person who's opposing you, but you do it in the right way. You do it in, with gentleness and respect. You fight, the, you fight the good fight for the faith, but you fight it in God's way, not the world's way. So there's, the, there's this idea of how do we fight? How does God want us to fight? It's the spiritual battle, the spiritual weapons that God gives you. You've got prayer. You've got faith. You've got God's word to guide you. It's a lamp to your feet. It's a light to your path. You have faith and hope and love. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. You can, you can even say a prayer and say, Holy Spirit, would you please reveal to me if this idea is even from you or not. And count on the Holy Spirit to answer that prayer. So you have run from evil things, pursue godliness, fight the good fight for the faith. Finally, the last verb is hold tightly. Hold tightly. The Bible says take hold of in the New International Version. What are you to take hold of? Timothy, what does God want you to hold tightly to? Now, it says, it says in the passage, it says, hold tightly to the eternal life to which God called you. And you could read that passage and you could say, wow, is Paul telling Timothy, Timothy, if you don't keep on preaching well and leading well and choosing good leaders and praying in public right and establishing good doctrine and opposing false teaching, Timothy, if you do all those things, you've got a chance at heaven. 
as if Timothy was earning his way into heaven, right? You could read it. Take hold of the eternal life to which God has called you. I don't think it's talking about earning your way into heaven or doing enough good to cover all the bad things that you've done. That's what most of the world thinks, by the way. How do you get to heaven? Well, you got to be a good person. What does it mean to be a good person? Well, you have to do all these right things and you have to do not do all these wrong things. And what's your definition of right and wrong? Well, that gets complicated, right? So, uh, but to be a good person is how most people think you get to heaven. We know better. We know that there's no one good among us. We know that we're all sinners who, if we're saved, we're saved because of the grace of God. We're saved by grace alone, through our faith alone, in Christ alone, right? John says it this way. He, in fact, I love this verse. I wish everybody would memorize it because whenever somebody is tempted to doubt your own salvation, where you say, am I, really, am I really in God's kingdom? Am I really going to heaven? Do I really belong to Christ? Am I in Christ? Go back to this verse. It's in 1 John chapter 5. And he says these verse, God, John says this, says, God has given us eternal life. He has given us eternal life. Thank God for that. This life is in his son. He who has the son of God has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. In other words, I write these things to you who do all these right things and get down to the end of your life and you hope your good outweighs your bad. Is that what he's saying in this passage? Not at all. He's saying, I've written these things to you who believe. You've put your trust in Jesus. You believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I think God doesn't want the guessing game in your life, whether or not you're in his family, whether or not you're going to heaven. He wants you to have the peace and the assurance. Let the peace of Christ rule your heart, says in Colossians. Have the peace to know that you have eternal life because you put your trust in Jesus. So he's not talking about uh, uh, work Timothy so hard so you can obtain eternal life. He's saying, work hard, Timothy, because if you do, you're going to produce a lot of spiritual fruit in your life, and you're going to see lives changed around you, and you're going you're gonna to feel like, thank you, God, that you're actually using me to make a difference in this world. That's what, I, that's what I'd hope everybody would have. God, I, now that I'm in your kingdom, and this is what I hope everybody has. God, now that I'm in your family, I'm in your kingdom, it's great and I rejoice in that, but God, I don't want to, I, I look around and I see all these people around me who don't have the hope, who don't have the assurance of eternal life because they are not in your son Jesus. So God, help me to do something to love them, to say a good word about you, to invite them to church, that when the God Question series comes along, to get a card and ask them to come here, to help them come to a saving knowledge of the truth, truth because, Lord, it says right here in 1 Timothy, God, you, uh, uh, you're the Savior of all men. You want everybody to come to the knowledge of the truth. God, help them. Use my life to help other people come into your family there's where the eternal life, that's where the awesome life is found. That's where the abundant life is found, by helping other people come into God's family. When you do that, Timothy, you're going to have a fruitful ministry. So take hold of that eternal life to which God has called you. Now, Paul goes into this big, uh, how do you say it? 
he, he gets real serious with Timothy. He does this in 2 Timothy 2, and he, he starts saying, and I, Timothy, I'm charging you before God. And he says in verse 15, I charge you before God who gives life to all, and before Christ Jesus, who gave a good testimony before Pontius Pilate. Timothy, I'm charging you that you obey this command without wavering. Right? And then he says about Jesus. Go back to the, the verse that you were just at. There you go. Uh, the font gets smaller, but it's still there. And I can still read it. Verse 16, talking about Jesus, talking about, it says, for at just the right time, and, and now Paul's going into the second coming of Christ, right? Jesus came once already. He came as a babe in Bethlehem, but he's going to come in a whole different way when he returns, and he's going to come in power and great glory. And he's going he's to send his angels. They're going to gather the elect from the four corners of the earth. And then Jesus is going to return. And Paul's describing this now. And he says, at just the right time, Christ will be revealed from heaven by the blessed and only almighty God. Who is this? Who is this? He's the king of all kings. He's the Lord of all lords. He alone can never die. He lives in light so brilliant that no human can approach him. No human eye has ever seen him, nor ever will. All honor and power to him forever and ever. Amen. But it's like the second time Paul did it in chapter 1. Now he's doing it again at the end of the letter where he just goes into big, what we call the doxology. You guys remember, you guys have been in church a while. You know what a doxology is, right? Uh, a doxology is a hymn of praise, right? That's where you say, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above who? Ye heavenly hosts. I used to say thee, but it was ye because I didn't know ye was such an old English word. Uh, so all praise and honor to God. That's what we do in the doxology. Paul just spells it out in more detail in these verses. And he's talking about Jesus and he's saying, when you think about Jesus and who he really is, when you think about the return of Christ, what we call the second coming, the return of Christ, by the way, that is going to be God's ultimate proof that Jesus really is who he said he was, that he really is the son of God. He really is the savior to those who trust him. And this time around, now Jesus came very meekly and humbly the first time, born to this peasant couple in Bethlehem in a manger, laid in a feeding trough, right? Very humbly and poor in Israel in the first century. But when Jesus returns, it's not going to be Jesus the meek and mild. It's not going to be Jesus the humble, Jesus the, the quiet. It's going to be Jesus the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's going to be returning in full power and great glory. Paul, not Paul, John, another apostle, John describes this in Revelation. Talking about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. John sees this vision of Christ returning to earth from heaven. And, and John says this in Revelation 19. This is slide 13 and 14. It says, then I saw heaven opened. I saw a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True. For he judges fairly. He wages a righteous war. I, I think that's another way of saying, Timothy, I want you to fight the good fight for the faith. You need to wage a righteous war for the victory of the Christian faith in this world today. His eyes were like flames of fire. His head, on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. 
and he wore a robe dipped in blood. His title was the Word of God. My goodness, you, you, when you even fathom that, these amazing titles for Jesus Christ, he's faithful and true. He's the Word of God. He's the King of all kings. He's the Lord of all lords. It reminds me of, um, I, I remember in the 1980s, there was this rock band called Petra. And yes, there was such a thing as a Christian rock band. That is not an oxymoron. Um, Christian rock band named Petra. And they took, they took this Maranatha song that was in Sunday school that you could probably remember singing. Remember? King of kings and Lord of lords, glory, hallelujah. Pretty soon you're like the Jewish, you know, at the festival. Jesus, king of peace. Okay, so you're doing all this. Well, they rock... Thank you, Andrea. They rockified it. And they put this m massive rock sound to it, and they just started going, King of kings and Lord of lords, glory, hallelujah. And then you get this, Jesus, Prince of peace. Please look it up on YouTube. I heard it this week. It blessed me. I think it'll bless you. Even if you say, I want to learn how weird Pastor Jim is, and he po he's pointing me to find out. Uh, Petra. King of kings and Lord of lords. Look it up on YouTube. So anyway, that, that, that heaven would just break out of the glory of Christ. Jesus did that one time on earth, by the way, before he ascended into heaven. There was this one little glimpse that Jesus gave of his glory before he was glorified and risen from the dead and, and ascended into heaven. And it, it's this place called the Mount of Transfiguration. So it's in northern Israel. Uh, uh, a lot of scholars think it's the same mountain that's called Mount Hermon. And I'm in prayer meeting with Mary Baum and Regina Goulart, and we're praying together, and we started talking about uh, their trip to Israel in the 90s. And they, in 1995, they went with some people from this church to Israel, and they said, Jim, there was actually like this gondola or something, and you go from some place in the mountain, and you go all the way up to the top of Mount Hermon. And I said, if I ever go to Israel, I want to go on that gondola. So up at the top of the mountain called the Mount of Transfiguration, only three of Jesus' followers were with him. And they were Peter and James and John. And they're up on the top of the mountain. And they said, as the men watched, this is in Matthew 17, as the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became as white as light, right? And they saw, so in other words, they saw Jesus in his real glory. Um, I got a glimpse of that when Jesus was praying in John 17. And he's praying, he says, Father, I've given you glory here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And he says, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And you're just going like, Wow, this is not just Jesus born in, a, born in a manger in Bethlehem. This is God the Son becoming a human being, the Word becoming flesh and living for a while among us, and veiling that glory because he was fully God and fully man, being a human being and being willing to humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. But the real Jesus that was veiled was the Jesus that we're talking about right here. King of kings, faithful and true, Lord of lords, Word of God, out of his mouth comes a sharp sword. It says his title is the Word of God. The armies of heaven uh, are following him dressed in white linen uh, on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword to strike down the nations, right? 
He says he's the word of God. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Right? So he will rule them with an iron rod. He'll release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. The juice, he'll release the wrath of God like juice flowing from a wine press. We're going to see that in this area in the next month. On his robe at his thigh was written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So Paul says, Paul says, Timothy, I'm asking you to do a lot of things. I'm asking you to straighten out a lot of problems. I'm asking you to rebuke a lot of false teachers. I'm asking you not to go down certain roads that are going to lead you astray and will lead you to wander away from the faith. You're going to have to pursue righteousness and godliness. You're going to have to discipline yourself. You're going to have to fight, Timothy. You're going to have to fight the good fight of the faith. But if you do, Timothy, guess who you get to meet? You get to meet the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You get to meet him in his glory. And he is going to say to you, Timothy, well done. You were faithful and you hung on and you were victorious. And to those who overcome, Jesus has all these promises. And so do we. No one has ever seen God at any time, John says as he opens his gospel. But he says, but God, the one and only, God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. That's the God that we serve. That's the God Timothy serves. That's the God to whom we are called to fight the good fight for the faith. We're not going to store up treasures here on earth. We're going to be generous, like Paul's telling the rich at the end of the chapter. He says, hey, don't count on your wealth. Don't hoard it. Don't think that this is the reason you have any importance in this world. All this stuff that you have is temporary. You can't take it with you. Like we said last week, you don't see any hearses pulling U-Hauls. So, so you can't take whatever you've accumulated on this earth. You can't take it with you anyway. He says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And he actually says that in 1 Timothy. And I said, Paul, you're, you know, you're a great guy, but you stole that from Jesus because he said it in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, don't store up yourselves treasures on earth where moths can break in, rust can destroy, it can spoil. He says, store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy. Thieves do not break in and steal. For wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. If your treasure, if the greatest treasure of your life is Jesus, then you don't have any problem putting him on the throne of your life. You don't have any problem saying, I'm not just going to live for me anymore. If Jesus died for me, I'm going to live for him. And you won't have any trouble bowing your will to him when Jesus says, I want you to do this or I want you to avoid that. You're just going to say, yes, Lord. Because there isn't anything in the Christian vocabulary where you say, no, Lord. Because if you say no, when Jesus asks you to do something and you say no, you're actually saying, I don't recognize you as Lord. You can't say no, Lord, if he's really the Lord of your life. So you say, yes, Lord. And you do all those things, Timothy. You come down to the end of the chapter. He says, and this is in your bulletin, if you want to fill in the blanks, three words of advice that Paul gives as he concludes this awesome letter. He says, Timothy, guard what God has entrusted to you. A lot of people invested a lot of time and energy Paul probably talking about himself as much as anybody. But all those elders, Lois and Eunice, your mother and your grandmother, when they taught you the faith since you were young, all those leaders in the church, when they laid hands on you and prophesied over you and, you, and said, 
you're going to be a great leader in God's church, Timothy. All that's been entrusted to you, Timothy, guard it. You know, you don't see guards in front of an empty field. You don't see guards in front of a trash dump. Where do you see guards? You see guards at banks. You see guards at museums. You see guards in fancy malls. You see guards in rich neighborhoods that hire their own security agencies. Why? Because they feel that there's something of value that needs to be protected. And, and Paul's telling Timothy, what you have, Timothy, is the most valuable thing anybody could have on this planet. You need to guard it, what God entrusted to you. Don't let godless, foolish talk lead you to wander away from the faith. They're going to come. Opposition's going to come. You're going to have lies that look like truth. You're going to have wolves in sheep's clothing come up to you and say, hey, Timothy, what do you say we go this way with the church? What do you say we start doing this thing? Check with the Word of God. Make sure you know the Word so well that when the lie and the counterfeit comes along, you're not going to be led astray. You're not going to wander away from the faith. And then ultimately, Timothy, rely and depend on God's grace to be with you. God's grace is always bigger than our disgrace. God's grace is we get what we don't deserve, but we get it because God wanted to give it to us. And I go right back to 1 Timothy in chapter 2. And Hannah and, and April and worship team, I'm going to ask you guys to come up. Because in 1 Timothy 2, there's a verse that describes God's grace. First of all, he's, remember I told you this. I said, when we're praying in public and you're praying for kings and all those in authority that we might live quiet and godly lives... And he says, this pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to come to faith, to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's God's will for everybody. And then he comes down to chapter 2 and verse 5. Right? There's one God and one mediator between God and man. There's only one. Because Muhammad didn't die on the cross for your sins, and neither did Confucius, neither did Moses, neither did Joseph Smith, <laughs> Neither did any other religious leader in this world. There's only one who qualifies to be the mediator, to be the go-between, to be the one who represents both sides to the other and says, my job is to reconcile sinful man to a holy God. And the way Jesus did it, the way he became our mediator, was he gave his life on the cross for you. And he says, if I gave my life for you so you could be reconciled to God, would you give your life to live for me? Because if you're willing to do that, then you know what it means to be a follower of Christ. And if you've never made that step before, and you've never asked Jesus to come into your life, if you've never told him verbally in prayer that you are willing to be his follower, and you're going you're gonna to believe and trust in him, today could be the day when you cross over from spiritual death to spiritual life. It could be an awesome day of celebration for you. So let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. And with our eyes closed and our heads bowed, I want to ask you do, you, do you have the assurance, like John was talking about earlier, do you have the assurance of eternal life? Do you know that you're going to be with Christ and that you're in Him, that you have His Holy Spirit? Do you have that assurance in your life right now because you put your trust in Jesus? If you haven't done that yet, He's only a prayer away. John says, as many as received him, as received Jesus, he gave the right. Jesus gives you the right to be called a child of God because you received him. 
Lord Jesus, right now, we come to you in humble faith and we turn away from whatever direction, whatever philosophy, whatever values that we had in our life that were contrary to you and the direction you want us to go. Lord, we, we repent and turn around from that. And we come back to you in humility and in faith. And we say, Lord Jesus, I'm, de I'm declaring today that I'm going to be your follower that I want you to come into my life and forgive me of all my sins. That I want, I want to be filled with your Holy Spirit so I can be empowered to live the life that you call me to live. Lord Jesus, thank you for being the mediator between God and man. Thank you that you came into the world to save sinners just like me. Lord Jesus, I love you because I know that you love me first. You proved it when you died for me and you were raised from the dead and now you invite me to be in your family and I say yes and I accept your invitation thank you for your grace thank you for your forgiveness thank you for eternal life and I pray these things in your name amen I hope if you prayed that prayer for the first time I hope that you'll tell me when the service is over in the, in the back I have some resources that I want to help you continue to follow in the steps of Jesus. Now let's stand together as we close in a song.